of our need that would be for a Messiah. The need for Christ crucified. The need for the resurrected Savior. The need to bring back the weak and sinful and broken. And God, we thank you that in Christ we can be whole. God, we pray you do your illuminating work today. Do your powerful work today beyond our weakness and frailty that we would seek you first. And God, that your word would speak volumes to our hearts. Lord, where there's unbelief, Lord, let us have belief. Where there's sin, let us have repentance. Where there's discouragement, let us have encouragement. Lord, pour out your grace to your people now. Through your word, we pray. And God, we pray in light of uh, just in our country, we celebrate Black History Month this month. We pray, like God, where there are still barriers racially in our country, uh, Lord, you would break those down. God, where there are areas of sin in our hearts or in others, Lord, that there would be no partiality. There would be a hope in the reconciling work of the gospel. Lord, you tear down the walls, the dividing walls of hostility between Jew and Gentile. So we pray you would do that even more in our country, Lord. And God, we pray for our friends over at Ridge Baptist today. Um, They asked for prayer about evangelism and mission. God, we are doing some prayer walking with them. We pray for them in their desire to grow in that. Lord, that they would truly grow. God, we pray for them as they're looking for a worship leader. Lord, that you would fill that spot. Give them the perfect person to lead and serve their church week in and week out. And Lord, they mentioned they're selling some property um, nearby. Lord, I pray that you would uh, provide purchases, purchasers for that. And Lord, as they desire those monies to not just sit in the land, but to be used for ministry. Um, God, I pray that your finances, your cattle on a thousand hills would be used for your kingdom work. We pray that here. We pray that there. We pray that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. And our children, thanks for being in here. You can be dismissed to your class. Thank you, Hope Kids Workers, uh, each and every month serving, each week. Is the new class starting today or is that next week? 12th. March 12th is the new class called the Excellent Eagles. There we go. Um, before I start the message, I wanted to note uh, many of our moms will be gone next week uh, on uh, the women's retreat. So we are super thankful for the women's retreat uh, going on. Really excited for the ladies to get away and serve one another and love one another and have the gospel care that will be going on there. Ladies who are going, there's 30-something of you. We will be praying for you. Um, so thank you for being willing to go. We will try to hold down the fort here and not mess up too bad. And... Um, And so we are thankful. Please be praying. I just heard Jennifer Gunther heard her back. She's one of them leading next week. Please pray that God would help heal her back um, this week. Uh, And um, Holly Shanahan's doing a lot of the uh, teaching leading too. So thank you for doing that, Holly. Um, uh, Kids aren't in here. I just dismissed them. Well, you can tell the kids. They know this already. They've heard me say it's pajama day. I should have said that before they left. Pajama day next Sunday. They're welcome to be here in their pajamas. So dads, you don't have to worry about that um, as you're just trying to scramble from a weekend of 
parenting. Um, there's going to be a Taekwondo demonstration and gospel lesson uh, for the older kids in the cafeteria next week. So that's a little fun thing for the kids next week that we'll be having. And then we're going to have lunch, pizza lunch for everybody here. So um, we're going to have lots and lots of pizza. So uh, that's mainly to help the dads with the kids, teenagers, limit yourself until, I know I've got five teenagers in the home, limit yourself until uh, the kids and dads can get some of the food because they're the ones that are going to be scrambling. Um, but then you can have plenty of pizza too. All right, well, I have a good friend named Sean from college and seminary, and one time I was at his house, and his dad, Larry, did something that I'll never forget. He asked me to follow him up a hill up, uh, toward this pile of rocks, he told me that the pile of rocks represented different men in pastoral ministry that he regularly prayed for. And he added right there in front of me a rock to the pile and told me he from that day would start praying for me. And it was hugely encouraging. I was 19 years old. I'd just been called into pastoral ministry. And I still know where that pile of rocks is on the hill in Knoxville, Tennessee. I could take you there. That pile of rocks means more to me and obviously more to Larry than a pile of rocks. Now, my friend's dad knew that symbols of remembrance were important. It's a gift to remember. It's a gift to remember people, a gift to remember events, and even more, a gift to remember the powerful work of God. And throughout the book of Joshua, we're going to see a lot of piles of rocks like you might think like, pile of rocks, where are we going with this? You see that throughout the book of Joshua. All of them are to speak to the people and recount events and stir memories. They will be for both encouragement and for warning. So rocks from a river, rocks from the wall of Jericho, rocks that are on top of the uh, bearing sinful Achan. So rocks, rocks, rocks. Even at the end of the book, the last chapter, Joshua ends the book with a large stone, a big rock, as a symbol of covenant between God and the people. So throughout Joshua, you see this line of rocks. So please open to Joshua chapter 4. We're going to cover chapters 4 and 5 today. So we're going a little faster than we have a lot of the other messages. So it's a lengthy passage, but remembering and recounting God's mighty acts. And here's kind of the overarching big picture of the message in the chapters 4 and 5. The remembering and recounting of God's mighty acts keeps God in his rightful place and us in ours. The remembering and recounting of God's mighty acts, it helps us. It, it keeps God in his rightful place and keeps us in ours. So point number one today is going to be this, remembering God's mighty acts at the Jordan. Let's look at God's word. It's the most important thing I say today. Is John, John, sorry, Joshua chapter 4, verse 1. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people from each tribe, a man, and command them, saying, Take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel." 
that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Verse 8, And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded, took up the twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. Point number one, like I said, remembering God's mighty acts at the Jordan. We saw in Joshua chapter 3 these 12 guys, but Joshua chapter 3 doesn't tell us why those 12, excuse me, guys are brought over with the priests and kind of heading toward the Jordan. Well, here we find out why. They grab big, large rocks, put them on their shoulders, and they're going to take them across as a memorial, as stones of remembrance. And I love this. Just get this part of the passage, but it, you'll see the thread throughout chapters 4 and 5. God has the next generation in mind. Friends, God has the next generation in mind. You see this throughout chapters 4 and 5. We prayed about this last week. We prayed for our teenagers. We want to be a people with God that has the next generation in mind. In verses 6 through 8, we find God creating curious kids to ask questions. So parents, when you get annoyed with those questions, God made your kids to be curious. And they're going to ask questions about those rocks. What are those rocks supposed to do? They're supposed to teach. They give an opportunity for the parents to pass down the story of God's might of the Jordan. Look at verse uh, 6 and 7. I already read this, but look. When your children ask in time to come. Not if your children ask. They're going to ask, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And just remember, these adults, the parents here, are the kids who asked their parents things. They heard stories about the Red Sea crossing. They saw the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day. These are the kids who, you know, manna was their diet. Like they went out of their tent and they, all right, Johnny, go collect the manna today. Like, oh, it's Sunday. There's no manna out, or Saturday, or Sabbath. Uh, there's no manna out there. Now these kids turned adults are in their 20s and 30s and 40s, and they're telling the next generation, kids, we are thankful you are curious. And let me encourage you to ask questions. We want your questions. You are living and trying to navigate a world that is different than your parents' world in so many different ways. You are trying to figure out a world where people are claiming to be a different gender than their biological makeup, 
We want to answer those questions biblically for you. We're living in a world that congratulates the feminization of men and celebrates the dominance of women. We want those questions and be biblical as possible. We live in a world that calls evil good and good evil. We want to help you. And parents, are you listening to your children, loving them, talking to them, helping them, discipling them? Are you giving them a biblical framework, a biblical worldview when they say, what does that mean? I heard that. I saw that. I saw that sign. I heard that tweet. I saw that video. Like, what's going on here? We are the ones to bring gospel truth to the next generation. And parents, if you don't know, which there are many questions that you're not, yeah, I don't know how to answer that. Get help. Have others come alongside you. That's what we as a church family want to do in community group and just as family to help one another. Parents, do you consider the stones of remembrance in your house, the artwork, the sticky notes, the pile of rocks in the backyard, whatever? Do you have areas of your home that you consider, man, that points my kids, my family to the Lord? Parents, it's our job, not the school's job, not Hope Kids class, not youth group's job. It's our job to teach and train and disciple our kids. So we must own this. God tells the people of Israel, have an eye toward the next generation. I love this D.A. Carson quote. I heard somebody else quote it, so kind of down the stream here. But here's what he says. This is why it's important for us to give a biblical worldview to our kids. He says, what is seen and marveled at in one generation can often be assumed in the second generation and then lost in the third generation. Friends, we've got to care about the next generation and gospel fidelity. But what's interesting in this passage, which I actually like never paid attention to still till I started studying Joshua, is that there's actually a second pile of rocks. Did you know that? So I think about the, the stones of remembrance, they get these rocks out of the river, they place them out there. But look at verses 9 and 10. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests, being the ark, uh, uh, sorry, bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priest bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. So get this picture. You, like, come upon the scene. There's going to be these rocks, this rock pile outside of the river area that's supposed to point them to what happened. But then during, uh, during flood season, you don't see a second pile of rocks. But then as the water goes down, when it's not flood season, you see this pile of rocks and you see another pile of rocks just like it. And this recounting, that's where the priests stood. That whole time, that's where the priests stood. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. God stopped the Jordan and they walked through on dry ground into the promised land. Look at verses 11 through 14 then as we finish up the crossing here. 
People passed over with haste, and when all the people had finished passing over the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people, the sons of Reuben um, and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle in the plains of Jericho. On that day, uh, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. So these verses, 11 through 14, are verses basically of fulfillment of things that were said or talked about in chapters 1 through 3. God delivers on his promises. They crossed the Jordan at flood season. The tribes of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe Manasseh do go and help them. That was a promise they made to Moses. It's fulfilled, and now they do what they say they're going to do. And Joshua's reputation grows. All these are promises from God detailed out in chapters 1 through 3. And now, basically, this passage says it happened. That's good to know. What God laid out did happen. Continuing in verse 15, the people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up <clears throat> at Gilgal, and he said to the people of Israel, when, again, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do, those stone, what do these stones mean, then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground, and the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. Now get this, 24, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is almighty that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Now, love how nothing happened at the Jordan River. We covered this last week. As they're bearing the Ark of the Covenant, nothing happened. They're walking toward the Jordan. It's rushing water. Nothing changes until they step into the river. Then everything changes. The, the, the ground is dry. And they probably stood, these priests with the Ark of the Covenant, probably stood in the middle of this area for hours. We know there's like a million plus people passing over. Like that takes a while for them to walk over the river. So they're bearing this thing on their shoulders and the water stays back. The ground is dry. And then this passage says, as they step out of the area where the river had been, the water flows again. Flood season comes back to the Jordan River. And all that God promised happened. Get this, God's mighty act of the Jordan is done. The people are now in the promised land. Like, that's a big deal. Like, I know you might just read, you know, 19 to 24, you're like, do, 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 do. okay, that's good. Uh, but you're like, oh, they're in. This promise that, that they would be in this eventual promised land that happened 700 years prior to Abraham, they're now in. Last week we saw in Joshua 3.10 that the people, as they passed, 
there were like several purposes said. One of the purposes is that they would pass and God would show them in the passing of the Jordan that those people in the promised land that they were kind of scared about 40 years prior, the Canaanites and Hittites and Hivites and Gergesites and all these people, like it's going to show, it's going to be a promise that they're going to take them out. God's got this. But in chapter 4, verse 24, we find another reason. Why did God dry up the river? Why did God let the people cross? Why did God have them get stones for their children to ask their parents? Why? Look at verse 24. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. This is for Israel to know Yahweh, but not just Israel. This is for all the peoples in the promised land, the Hittites, Gergesites, Canaanites, Amorites, all of them, to know that the hand of Yahweh is mighty. We already saw that Rahab had turned and trusted Yahweh. We saw that a couple chapters ago. Now those others of the Canaanites and Hittites and Amorites and all those see your sin your idolatry, your rebellion against Yahweh, your child sacrifices, your immoral decay, and turn to Yahweh. Continue in verse 24, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord God forever. The people learn an awe and wonder about God, the fear of the Lord in the Jordan River crossing. You see, the fear of the Lord is a good and right response to God. In his excellent book on the fear of the Lord called Rejoice and Tremble by Michael Reeves, he says this. This is helpful for us to think about fear of the Lord. We fear when we encounter something we cannot control. Isn't that true? We fear when we encounter something we cannot control. The Israelites could not control the river but they obviously can't control the one who dries up a river, the one who stops the river. They cannot control Yahweh. But this fear of the Lord is different from sinful fear, a gripping fear where you're fleeing for safety. No, Reeves continues, he says this, yet all should be encouraged. For the nature of the living God means that the fear which pleases him is not a groveling, shrinking fear. He is no tyrant. It is an ecstasy of love and joy that senses how overwhelmingly kind and magnificent, good and true God is, that therefore leans on him in staggering praise and faith. This is the fear that God wants all the peoples of the earth to have, all to bow down, all to worship and experience the ecstasy of love and joy of a magnificent God. You cannot control him. You can't even, yeah, you can try, but it's not going to work out well. Friends, do we have that kind of fear, that kind of awe, reverence, respect for God? Do we lean on God with staggering praise and faith? Do we look at the stones of remembrance, those signposts of God doing things in this wilderness we live in? And do we grow more amazed by God's grace to us? Now, as we heard, uh, sorry, as we head into chapter five, the people now are in the promised land and now facing the great enemy that you would think, like just think any of you guys who are in the 
or ladies who have been in the military, like you, you cross a major boundary into enemy territory. What are you going to do next? David Jackman says, all our modern instincts would be to push as quickly as possible. The people are motivated. There's an element of surprise. Adrenaline is pumping. But that's exactly the opposite of what God does. It's really fascinating as you go from chapter 4 to chapter 5. God has the people stop for days. Stop. You're going to take the land. We're at war. Stop. We're going to have some surgery. We're going to have a meal. Let's stop. Point number two, recounting and obeying God's holy requirements. You might think going into chapter 5 and this whole idea of surgery and meals and stopping that the kings of the nations, like they've just crossed into the, the promised land, like they're on someone else's territory, right? So you would think like the kings are going to come at them now, right? But look at verse 1. I think that's why verse 1's in here for us. As soon as the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted. And there was no longer any spirit in them because the people of Israel. God's going to have them stop. He's like, I'll take care of those guys. You're going to stop, and we're going to work on this together. So we had, we, uh, it's just amazing thing about the battle strategy of God's people here. They do pretty much nothing, right? You walk. All right, we're going to war. Walk. That's what you're doing. They haven't really done anything. The enemy's hearts are melting, and they walked. That's all. We're walking. God did that with the people. Rahab recounted that when they heard about the Red Sea. Jericho was already shaken by that. Now they're shaken by the Jordan River. See, God works on behalf of his people. Yahweh wants his people to be ready, but being ready is being holy. So they stop. God cares more about our humility than our productivity. They consecrate themselves prior to crossing the Jordan, and now they renew an important part of the Old Covenant. Look at verse 2 of chapter 5. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraah. I always mess that one up. Haroth. I tried. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them, all the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war. He died in the wilderness on the way after, uh, sorry, had died in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the, peop, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. Verse 8, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in, the, in camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name that, of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Now Joshua was told in chapter 1 to do everything that was written in the book of the law. And there was a glaring omission to obedience. Circumcision had not been done for a generation. It's actually quite surprising that Moses actually never was circumcising the, the men, never walked toward that obedience, when in Exodus chapter 4, there's a kind of strange passage in there where Moses almost dies because his own sons aren't circumcised. Like, God comes at Moses and like his wife's like, oh, we're going to do this. You would think of all the people to start circumcising folks, we're rolling toward obedience to God. Now, circumcision, I'm going to be as wise, hopefully, as possible in explaining this, is the cutting of the male foreskin, but it's a symbol of a dedicated, circumcised heart to God. It began with Abraham in Genesis 17 and continued to be a, a covenant sign. All baby boys were to be circumcised on the eighth day. Circumcision links God's people to the story of God's faithfulness to Abraham, God's promise to Abraham, and they have just entered the promised land, which was promised 700 years prior, and they haven't been circumcised. First time I ever read verse uh, 2, circumcised the second time, I was like, what? Uh, that scared me a little bit. I didn't know what that meant. But the idea is that they never had with that second generation. Later we will find God uses the language of a circumcised heart in the New Testament. Philippians 3.3, we, Paul says, are the circumcision, here's a definition, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. There's no confidence in acts of flesh. There's no confidence in our acts of obedience. The confidence is in Christ. Colossians 2 even starts drawing on this, says there's a circumcision made without hands. So you're like, what? How, how's that work? In the New Covenant, the outward sign, and you see this in Colossians 2, is, is being faithful to God, and it transitions from circumcision toward obedience in baptism. Those who confess Christ, who trust Christ, are now baptized into Christ. Heart dedication, consecration, and faith. God's people are to be holy, to live lives fully dedicated to the Lord. And note that in verses 8 and 9, God speaks of the rolling away the reproach of Egypt. What we find with Israel up to this point is that any time things are hard, we don't have water, we don't have food, we don't like what's going on, that's like, man, remember Egypt? How great was Egypt? There was food there, there you know, it was, 
Egypt was like the place. It's, it, it, they make it sound like some like exclusive bed and breakfast or like Caribbean vacation. You're like, what are you talking about? And God's basically saying here, that's got to go away. We're rolling that away. Like that heart of going back to Egypt has to stop. So this is a bit of a turning point here. And isn't that the temptation, sinfully, that we can look at like, oh, can kind of have revisionist history and forget God's faithfulness to us? And I think that's part of why stones of remembrance are set up here. Remember the new exodus. Your generation and the next generation and the next generation. But we also get a link here in the next part of this text to the first exodus and keeping the Passover. Look at verse 10. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of uh, Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on the very day they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain, verse 12, and the manna, get this, and the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Now there are two significant events going on in this paragraph. It's kind of just a few short verses, but some significant things. First, the people take Passover, which represents the substitutionary lamb dying instead of the people dying, or for the first one, instead of the oldest son dying. Salvation through substitution. Now, it links this generation to their parents and grandparents who escaped enslavement at Egypt. And friends, we will miss something huge in this passage if we just kind of keep reading in verse 10. I missed this the first time I read it. I had to read other things. It's one of the reasons you want to have other Bible helps with you because you'll miss things. Verse 10 says, uh, or, uh, we know from chapter 4, verse 19, this is the first month of their calendar year. Verse 10 says it's the 14th day of the first month. Now, most of us aren't like 14th day of the first month. What in the world does that have to do with anything? This is the exact day that the people did the Passover in Egypt. The exact day. It was the first month, 14th day, when the first Passover ever happened. And this is the exact day that they are now across the Jordan in the promised land. So everything is encapsulated here. They leave on this day. They go where they're supposed to get to on this day. God tells Moses that this day is going to come in Exodus 13.5. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service. Talking about Passover in this month. Guys, this is all made by God, his providential orchestration the whole time. And friends, we've said numerous times throughout other sermons and this sermon that God has reasons why he does what he does in the timing he does it. Why did they cross the Jordan in flood season? 
There's, there's dry season, you just walk across. It's, not, it's like a little creek. You can go Google it. It's not bad. But during flood season, 10 to 12 foot, like d- t- the depth of 10 to 12 feet, it's rushing and it's like, now we're going to go. Why, God? Well, yes, the Jordan is supposed to point them to God's faithfulness. Yes, the Jordan is supposed to stir fear of the Lord of the nations, which we already saw in the text. But here, the crossing, the drying of the Jordan River at this particular time brings them to this exact day. During flood season, for them to have the Passover in the promised land, the exact day of the Passover in Egypt perfect lamb, substitutionary sacrifice. If you don't have the lamb's blood covering you, there is death. Friends, God is very purposeful. Friends, this will later make a connection as you keep reading to the cross of Christ, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who went through the Jordan, his perfect life, walked up to Golgotha and ascended up upon the cross as a substitute for sinners. And if you have the blood of the perfect Lamb of God painted over your life, you will find eternal life. But if you do not have the blood of the perfect Lamb of God as your substitute, you have eternal death. Friends, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, we encourage you to turn from having no substitute. You have to pay for your own sins. And turn to Christ, who is the perfect substitute. Turn to Christ today for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I said there were two major things that came about in verses uh, 10 through 12. The first was the Passover. The second is that manna stops. Okay, just a little Bible quiz trivia. What does manna, the word manna, mean? What is it? That's actually what it means. Like, they saw it when it first started, and they're like, what is it? Yeah, that's the name. It's like going to Panera Bread. You know what Panera means? Bread. Bread bread. Let's go eat a bread bread. Like, just, like that doesn't really make sense, but we have bread bread. What is it? Manna. And it stops. This generation had known six days a week for 40 years of this wonderful flaky substance. There's some quail thrown in there, but it's mostly manna. I'm sure you get kind of tired of it after a while. Friends, you can't last in the desert without food. They've been in wandering times in the desert, and God continues to give them sustenance. Yet this provision of manna is no longer necessary. God has provided. They are now in a land flowing with milk and honey, a prosperous cattle kind of land, a rich in vegetation, sweet with honey kind of land, a flourishing land, God's promised land. But you come back to the start of chapter 5. They've just entered into the promised land, there seems to be an urgency to go to battle with the, with the um, Canaanites, go to battle in Jericho, and you've got to continue to think here, the big picture, pulling out, why would they stop? 
God brings them through the Jordan. Why stop, have genital surgery, and a big meal? Because this is not about military strategy or an element of surprise or efficiency. This is about the people's heart. This is about dedication. This is about commitment to God. God isn't concerned about their efficiency. He's concerned about their loyalty. So how's your loyalty to the Lord? Is your life set apart to the Lord, holy unto him. Do you have a soft heart, an open heart to anything God desires of you? Or as DJ Provience, she was given a testimony, a story of God working in her life. She's going to be a missionary in Central Asia with her husband and family. And she said, I want to wake up each morning saying yes to whatever God has for me that day. That is no easy, trivial statement. Friends, is our heart soft, our, our loyalty high to honor King Jesus, a sensitivity to the Spirit? Are we sensitive to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit? Are we sensitive to the prompt, prompting work of the Lord to encourage others, to use our gifts to edify? Are we sensitive and perceptive to the Lord working in our spouse or in our children or our roommate or our classmate or our coworker? Are we sensitive and walking toward the Lord saying, my loyalty is you, Jesus. We're willing to stop, to stop, We've got lots going on to stop and say, I consecrate myself. We saw that last week. We see it here again. You get the theme here that God cares about the hearts of his people. The holiness of God's people isn't to earn favor, though. We are in a place of favor already. But we must understand something. God is not on our team. We must be on God's team. Third point, recognizing God's rightful place and ours. Verses 13 through 15 are some of my favorite because I love awkward moments, and this is like a biblically awkward moment. Look at verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. I love that. Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Wow. Are you for us or for our adversaries? Wrong question, Joshua. Wrong question. The right question is, are you on Yahweh's side? Not is Yahweh on your side? And friends, the sword is drawn. Like this guy is daunting. He is ready. And Joshua comes like everywhere else in the Bible where a sword is drawn. It's not pretty. And so he's coming with a bit of fear and trepidation 
to this daunting figure. He is not safe. And you may be thinking, well, but who is the commander of the Lord's army? Some think this is the pre-incarnate Christ. Others think it's an angel of the Lord, a kind of a warrior, the commander of the armies of angels. However, angels are not worshipped. When people fall down before angels and worship them, they say, stop it. Revelation 19.10, then I, John, fell down at his feet, the angel's feet, to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. You don't worship angels. You only worship God. This commander in Joshua chapter 5 brings no such correction. So either Joshua is falling down and actually worshiping Yahweh as there's an angel there, or this possible person, this person is God. Deserving all worship. But the point is that this commander shows up on the verge of Joshua going into battle, and Joshua has to see something. Here's what he has to see This is not your battle, Joshua. This is not Israel's battle. This is the Lord's battle. The Lord will fight for you. And note what Joshua's doing. Verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he pulls away, he's by Jericho. My guess is Joshua, as a good leader and strategist here, he's, he's been a, a fighter. You see that throughout other books of the Bible. Uh, and, and so he's looking at Jericho, he's pulled away by himself, and I'm just imagining he's looking at those walls. They're big walls, they're known walls, and he's like, ah, okay, we got through the river, I don't, how do you do that? What are we going to do? He's most likely troubled. How are we going to fight these guys? We may really act like, be like grasshoppers. And God comes and says, Joshua, this fight is not yours. Friends, this fight is not yours. The spiritual darts that come at you. The arrows that come at you, it's not your fight. You're part of the fight. You're getting in the fight. You'll actually do things in the midst of the battle, but it's not your fight. This isn't about you. It's God's fight. I'll fight, God says. I love this. I'll fight, you worship. I'll fight, you worship. David Jackman says this, the essential preparation for the fall of Jericho is that the earthly leader falls flat on his face before God. Here's the preparation. Don't do your push-ups. You don't have to work out. You don't have to strategize. Fall flat on your face before God. And notice the link to Moses. There's so many links to Moses and the Exodus in our text. Just as the crossing of the Jordan's linked to the crossing of the Red Sea, the Passover and the manna linked to Moses, um, now there's another link in the wilderness to Moses. What's Joshua supposed to do? Here's what is said. Take off your sandals for your feet, uh, of your, uh, sorry, from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. What does that link us back to? Someone yell it out. Burning bush. Moses, that's the other place we find such language. And notice how the chapter ends. I love this. And 
Joshua did so. Obedience. God has his rightful place. He is in control. This is his battle. Joshua has his rightful place. Bow. Worship. Obey. And the same can be said about us, friends. We are merely God's servants on God's mission for God's glory. Is that how you look at your life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. for stones of remembrance. We thank you for elements of remembrance. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. These gifts you've given to your church, your bride, your temple. And Lord, these you have given for us to remember. Lord, let us be a people who remember well. Let us be a people who pass on that to the next generation. Let us be a people who are holy unto you. And Lord, let us not wonder if you're on our side, (laughs) but we're on your side. Let us be a humble people who wants your kingdom to come and your will to be done. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would like prayer, uh, we'll have people up that can pray for you. Otherwise, we will see you at community group or next week. Love you guys.